Please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 1, 1 through 4. Please read with me the verses in bold. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel. Let me add my greeting uh, to others as well. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, thankful. Uh, there are not that many seats. And so if, I don't know, I, I don't know if that makes you feel uncomfortable um, or comfortable, I'm not sure which, but we're glad you're here. You're rubbing elbows with uh, people who are sitting right next to you and, uh, and worshiping the same God together. So thank you for being here this uh, Labor Day weekend. Eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is historically among the most convincing forms of evidence in criminal trials. Right? Nothing beats eyewitness testimony. It's used to establish facts in a criminal investigation or prosecution. The reliability of uh, eyewitness testimony can either make or break a criminal case. It can put someone in jail for a long time or release them of any wrongdoing. There have been many uh, television shows, to say the least, uh, that have been written to depict uh, what occurs in a courtroom. There are shows like Law and Order, Perry Mason, I know I'm dating, Suits, Matlock, Better Call Saul, and I think I'm trying to include all the generations. But probably my favorite is a scene from a courtroom uh, in a movie called A Few Good Men. You may remember uh, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, who at the questioning of lawyer Daniel Caffey, Tom Cruise, explodes. You can't... Gosh, everyone's seen the movie. <laughs> and likewise, the gospel writer Luke bases his work on the evidences of eyewitnesses. Luke gives us his sources. He informs us that while he himself may not have been a witness to all these events, he has obtained his information from the people on the ground, eyewitnesses, and what Luke calls servants of the word. Other apostles who would be credible witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We are in a long, long sermon series. That will take us through Advent, it'll take us through Lent to Easter. That's a long time. I think this may be the longest undertaking of a sermon series in the history of Grace Sacramento. So again, if you're here, you're in for a treat. We'll start chapter 1 this morning, we'll skip through large sections of chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then come back to them in Advent. Um, and then we'll look at 
uh, in Advent, five different eyewitness accounts of the birth of Jesus. And then we hope to get to chapter 10 by January 1st. And then by Lent, go through the last week of the life of Jesus, and then Palm Sunday, and then Easter. Whew, it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's a lot, and I don't think we're going to do it verse by verse. I think, I think if we were to, we would, it would take us 10 years. And so we're doing this kind of uh, the speedy, we think speedy, speedy run through the book of Luke in a little less than a year. We're calling the sermon series, That You May Know, as we think this was Luke's objective, that you may know, as we think this was Luke's objective in writing this gospel narrative, Luke wanted us to have an orderly account, credible witnesses testifying to the truth concerning the life and ministry of Jesus so that we might know with certainty. So if you're here this morning and this story is new to you, it's a story that we'll tell each week. You'll hear it in the songs. The songs that we sing, you'll hear it in the liturgy. And again, liturgy is a fancy word for what you guys have already done this morning. Uh, us making you stand up and then sit back down and then stand up and then sit back down again. You responding and sometimes making you guys sing and responding in song. Uh, liturgy. And then again, the table, which is the centerpiece of our worship service. At the end of each service, we celebrate the communion table, the Lord's table. And these elements of our worship uh, service, they, they tell a story, a gospel narrative that we'll look at, this beautiful story of this story that we'll read in the book of Luke. Or if you're here and you've had nagging questions about faith and God and about who this Jesus is that we talk about each week, my friends, you are in the right place. Luke mentions and writes this gospel to a man by the name of Theophilus, who we do not know whether he is a, already a follower of Jesus or is thinking of becoming one. But in either case, Luke does not write just for this one person, but for anyone who feels this tension. Luke's prologue, the first four verses of the book, tells us that we are, what we are about to read and how he has carefully considered and approached his task so that you and I might do the same thing. Or if you're here this morning and you've become, uh, been coming to church for a long time, we're glad you're here too. Perhaps we need a reminder of what we believe and why we believe it. The book of Luke is a great way for us to be prepared to make a defense of the gospel to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. So let's get to it. The book of Luke. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Luke. Let me ask you some obvious questions that have, I'm sorry, let me ask you some questions that have some obvious answers. And I don't mean they're simple or that you already knew it coming in, but I'm giving you the answer already. I'll give you five. Number one, which of the four gospels, again, the four gospels are the four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the longest. Luke, yeah. You guys are so smart. Luke. <laughs> Mark has 678 verses. Now, this is not work that I've done. John, the Gospel of John, has 869. Matthew 
28 chapters, and yet only 1,071 verses. And Luke, fewer chapters than Matthew, has 1,151 verses in all. We're covering them. Like I said, they'll take us to Easter. Number two, who wrote more of the New Testament than any other person? You guys are so smart. Luke, you might want to say Paul. If you know the Bible, if you know the New Testament, you might be inclined to say the Apostle Paul. He wrote many of the books of the New Testament. But in terms of actual words, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other person. He wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke that we're looking at here and the Acts of the Apostles, the one that follows afterwards. A history of the early Christian movements, not only is Luke's gospel the longest of the four, but it is the only one with a sequel, the book of Acts. We may or may not get to it after Luke is over. <laughs> now, these two books together comprise the biggest chunk of the New Testament authored by a single author or a single person. Number three, what is the only gospel written by a Gentile? Man, you guys are getting it. The answer is Luke. Luke was a Gentile believer, which means he was non-Jew, likely converted under the ministry of Paul. Just as Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, Luke was written for a Gentile audience. In fact, it seems to have also been written for a particular Gentile, a man by the name of Theophilus. Again, his name translated means lover of God. Number four. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which gospel tells us the most about the birth and the childhood of Jesus? All right, very good. John does not tell us anything about the events surrounding the nativity of Jesus. Instead, John takes the cosmic theological view of Jesus as the logos, the fancy word, the Greek word that means word, right, or the word of God. Uh, Matthew writes about the birth of Jesus from Joseph's perspective and records the visit of the Magi, the slaughter of innocent babies in Bethlehem. Mark includes no information on the nativity of Jesus and jumps right into the action of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1. Luke, however, takes us all the way back to the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. We learn about his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke is also the only gospel to give us a story from Jesus' boyhood. We know that he grew, uh, and it tells us about that, and tells us about Jesus in the temple at a young age. Last one. Which gospel mentions prayer more than any other book? All right, very good. You guys got it. Now, again, I mentioned that partly because we've been making announcements about prayer, and that would be Luke. Luke also mentions Jesus praying or teaching about prayer. Jesus, teach, uh, Jesus prays at his baptism. He often goes off to the wilderness to pray alone. He prays before choosing his apostles. He prays for Peter that his faith would not waver. He prays for his executioners at the cross. Luke, Luke also includes some of uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer that we find nowhere else, like the parable of the neighbor at midnight and the persistent widow. In fact, Luke mentions prayer more than all three of the Gospels combined. 
Luke is sometimes called the gospel of prayer. There's no more questions. It's Luke. You guys got it. Now, let me mention one more thing about the gospel of Luke. It is the only gospel with a sequel. Now, while Luke introduces Jesus and his ministry, the Acts of the Apostles, the second book, shows how the ministry relates to the early church. This link enables Luke to discuss how God brought his salvation in Jesus, how the early church preached Jesus, and how they carried out their mission to both Jew and Gentile. Explains how Jew and Gentile can be equals in a community planted by God. So Luke, uh, Luke clearly has a universal emphasis showing that the gospel is for every class, it's for every race, it's for every nation. The gospel is for the outcast and the marginalized. It's for the Jew and Gentile, for the poor and the destitute, for the lost and the stranger. But not just Gentiles or Jews and, and these others that I've mentioned, but sinners, those who fall from God's grace. I mean, those who fall short of the glory of God, sinners of every stripe are the focus of Luke's gospel. He uses the word sinner more than Matthew and Mark and John and more than, them all, more than all of them combined. In other words, the, the book of Luke is for everyone. The book of Luke is for us. And so with this in mind, let me read for us again the first four verses of the first chapter of the book of Luke. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. It's clear that Luke is writing in the interest of truth. Our culture, our world, the times that we're living in seems to have given up on the idea of truth. Take the news, for example. We have news that tells us not just what has happened, but what to think about it. Now, it seems fair to say that we find ourselves favoring news that tells us exactly what we want to hear and only provides information in support of that view. It doesn't matter whether you are a conservative whether you are a moderate or whether you're a progressive. There's an echo chamber and they're, uh, out there to back up whatever you want to hear, whatever you want to believe. That's just the kind of world we live in. If you're on Facebook, you'll notice much the same. The stories that seem to pop up are the ones that align with our political views, the ones that align with our religious views or our shopping tendencies. We live in a world where we're not just entitled to our own opinions, but we feel entitled to our own facts. Postmodernism. Postmodernism says that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Rather, truth is personal and subjective. It is not discovered, but created. In religious uh, and spiritual matters, especially that, uh, to say that uh, you have the truth is viewed as arrogance and intolerance, which implies that you're right and others are wrong. No arena, it is supposed, is more saturated in a subjective understanding of truth than religion and faith. I believe what I believe. You believe what 
you believe. And you don't try to change what I believe. In exchange, I will not tell you how ridiculous what you believe really is. Postmodernism emphasizes feelings over thoughts. It's a matter of the heart more than the matter of the head. And what Luke does in his gospel writing is present the truth and have us, the reader, carefully consider the life and ministry and claims of Jesus. Luke tasks, Luke's task was to provide them with such an account of the story of Jesus as would enable them to see that the story was a reliable basis for their faith. Starting in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, well, first, Luke is not the first person to write about Jesus. He seems to be aware of the fact that there are other gospel writers. There are others who have chronicled what Jesus did, that he, Jesus, in fact, did them, that he was a real person, that he lived in real time and real space, that he's not just made up. These did not happen in a corner, but they were fulfilled among us. Luke's gospel is rooted in the facts of verifiable history. And so Luke goes to great pains to make this clear, something the Apostle Paul does as well as he links uh, the entire Christian faith to one verifiable historical event, it's the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And, and Luke does the same here. He's presenting us the facts. He's an investigator, right? He's a detective. He's telling us and laying out for us all the work that he's done to carefully consider the truths concerning who Jesus is. What we have here is not just religious philosophy based on the speculation or the ideas of some great philosopher or religious thinkers, but that Christianity is primarily about the God who created the universe miraculously, invading into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, who God reveals to us in the person of Jesus now, they are matters of revelation from God. God has revealed himself to us in history in the person of Jesus Christ. And Luke wants us to know and believe this with absolute certainty. Let me continue reading. In verse 2, uh, Luke writes, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now, the question is, how can we be sure this is true? Luke mentions several things to establish the credibility of his account. He gives us his sources. First, there are many witnesses, he says, to the life and ministry of Christ who Luke consults. Probably while he was living in Caesarea, which it's, uh, it's probably fair and, and credible for us to believe that he, he interviewed uh, perhaps the likes of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to make sure that what he had in the story was in its correct form. Again, we know that when we read places in the first parts of chapter 1 and chapter 2 that tells us about, about Mary and what she was feeling. And again, how in chapter 2, it tells that Mary had treasured these things in her heart. Second, Luke refers to apostolic witnesses who had handed down what they had seen and knew to be true because they had been with Jesus. And these men had been servants of the word. They gave written testimony of the life of Christ. They lived with him and, and walked with him and gave eyewitness account to his work. There are others like Matthew and Mark and John. In verse 3 it says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. 
Luke writes an orderly account. Putting things in the correct chronological order was important to Luke. Other Gospels are not that interested in this. For example, John, and again, I know John is one of my favorite Gospels, and again, I don't know after having studied the book of Luke, I might change that, but uh, John was not interested in chronology, right? I mean, I, I, having the right order, right timing of everything, because John in chapter 2 mentions the, the triumphal entry, right, which is the last week of Jesus' life in chapter 2. Or you might get to uh, places where uh, Matthew or, or, or Mark uh, kind of switch things around uh, to kind of fit their, uh, their pattern of, of writing. Uh, Matthew organizes his gospel around the teachings of Jesus. When you flip through, if you have a red letter version, you flip through the book of Matthew, you might find uh, great sections of, of red letter writings. He clumps them all together. Um, again, he says, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And then lastly, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Something very unique happened the coming of Jesus. God stepped into human history, so our faith, therefore, is intricately tied to events that happened back then. Our salvation was accomplished through God's act in human history. We can't know our salvation unless we know the story. And Luke says he's writing to Theophilus, and I would say to us, so that we might be sure, that we might have certainty about the things that have been taught. My friends, this is important. In the prologue, in the first four verses, Luke gives us his intentions. He writes to us, giving us the purpose of his writings and tells us that, again, it's so that we might know with certainty. Just like between a husband and wife, as they stand before the altar, make a public confession give a public vow of their love for one another. We know with certainty the kind of commitment our spouse or our future spouse is making to us and, and we to them. Or perhaps an older parent, as they think about uh, passing on a legacy to their kids, put in writing and, and uh, put this in a, on, on, a, in, uh, on paper and in ink, that whatever I've accrued in my lifetime, I'm passing down to you. You see, with, with certainty, I mean, that's why we sign contracts, and that's why we sign leases, and that's why we, we sign these things so that we might know with certainty. And the Word of God, and Luke's writing in particular, it's God's letter to us so that we might know with certainty. We might know with certainty what we have been taught. The question, how can we know for sure? My friends, we do not know for certain by looking at our own spiritual performance. It's hard to say whether I truly know God by how well we do spiritually. You see, because if the assurance of our faith rested on our ability to follow God, we certainly cannot know for sure. 
We would always have our doubts about our obedience or even about our faith, wondering if we were trusting God as well as we should. If it rested on our own ability to follow God, to obey God, we would have our doubts when those hardships come. The only way we become sure of our salvation, as Luke writes, is by looking at Jesus. By looking at Jesus, Luke's gospel is for anyone who wants to know, who needs to know Jesus. It's for people who have never met Jesus before, for people who need to meet him again. It's for people who aren't quite sure about Jesus, for people who are just starting to trust him, and for people who know him, have known him for a long time but still need to become more secure in their faith. It's for anyone who wants to know him for certain. My friends, if you fall into one of those categories, this place and this book is for you.